You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Two fans, one mission, bringing Major League Baseball to Oregon. Powered by the Portland Gear Store, this is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. And without further ado, your hosts, Ben and David. I'm Dave. And I'm Ben. And And welcome welcome to to the Diamonds Diamonds and Roses podcast. What's going on today, Dave? Well, besides the excitement of the possibility and and likelihood, frankly, of Major League Baseball coming to Portland, uh, today we've got one of uh, the episodes I've been looking forward to most. And what's that, Dave? The episode is about the Portland Mavericks, the iconic franchise from the 1970s. The Portland Mavericks. I love the Portland Mavericks. The story behind the owner and creator of this team, the story behind the team itself, the characters and its effect on Portland is an absolute mesmerizing story with a little biographical information about Bing Russell. Bing Russell. I found a little bit about Bing Russell as I was doing some background investigation into this particular story. And actually, I found out that he was born in Brattleboro, Vermont. So as you're well aware, I'm from Vermont. And so I felt that this was like a really cool connection between him and I, that him being from Vermont, which Brattleboro is in the southeastern corner of Vermont. But I thought found that connection with him. Very cool. We, you know, that's the thing about this show. We're always finding these small circles that connect us. Exactly. So Bing Russell grew up, spent the majority of his life in St. Petersburg, Florida. He had a pretty close affiliation to, to the New York Yankees franchise and was spending a lot of time with them as a youngster during spring training. He actually developed a, a significant friendship with Hall of Famer Lefty Gomez, who had a big impact on his life and gave him a lot of uh, instructional how-tos, worldly advice, and this and that. In addition to that, one interesting tidbit is he was given a significant bat by someone you might uh, recall, someone you might be familiar with, Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig. Wow. This bat that I found out was um, one that he hit his final home run with, and it was prior to him uh, retiring, and he retired because of a health issue, which is now known as Lou Gehrig disease. Am I correct, Dave? You are correct. Bing Russell is, is given this bat. And that had a profound effect on him. He already was a, a baseball junkie, so to speak. Despite his, his travels through life, baseball always remained his passion. He had some other passions, but baseball was always with him and he, he never left him. It was just part of his, the fiber of his being, essentially. Mm-hmm. So eventually, he, he graduated. He played ball at Dartmouth. And Dartmouth is in New Hampshire, correct? Yep. Okay. Smart, smart guy, athletic. He actually made a few seasons in the minor leagues and did pretty well in baseball, but he was smart enough to realize that that was probably about as far as he was going with baseball. Yeah, and one of the things that I found out was is that he had to retire from baseball because he was hit in the head with a baseball. Oh, yeah. 
the so, equi- the equipment was pretty subpar there. I, you know, I'm not sure what kind of helmet that was, or if they even wore them back then. It was your hat, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. If, if if you got beaten in the head, that might have been it. Mm-hmm. So we moved West to L.A. after graduating because he actually had a, a, an interest in on screen and stage acting, and he wanted to pursue that as a possible uh, livelihood. And there were a lot of opportunities in the 1940s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. And if if you want if you had any interest in that, whether being in front of the camera or behind the camera, you went to L.A. So he went to L.A. And he got uh, he, he worked hard, auditioned, had some opportunities, had some bit roles, and ended up landing a significant role in a western you might be familiar with. And I think that's Bonanza that he ended up getting a role in. Yeah, he wasn't Haas, but he played the deputy sheriff for thirteen years. So he actually made a, a, a living at this, and he made a career, and he was able to establish himself in L.A. through uh, acting parts and that consistent role. And he was able to raise a family, have some kids, one of whom you might recognize is Kurt Russell. And I think that Kurt said that uh, his dad was probably the most shot person in a country western ever. Sweet record. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about how many how many people got shot back then, that's yeah. uh, pretty impressive. I think there was something like two hundred plus times that he was shot in the western. <laughs> hey, he made a living at it. Exactly. Much respect. In the meantime, so he raised a family, he got married, had had several children, but he turned his backyard into a baseball field. Wow. At, the, at the same time, he, he's acting in these bit parts and this consistent role in Bonanza. He's also filming instructional videos. And these just weren't unprofessional, personal instructional videos. These were pretty well-respected instructional videos. Some of those involved Kurt Russell and being told, go left, go right, <laughs> field the ball, throw the ball. And I believe, you know, you and I were talking about this, if I'm correct, that some major league teams use these instructional videos too? They did. Bing Russell, I, I guess we can call him an innovator that way because instructional videos and just watching video in general wasn't big back then. So he definitely can be considered an innovator in the 1950s and the 1960s with his uh, media influence on baseball. Pretty impressive to be able to uh, not be a, an aficionado, meaning uh, having played professional level at ma- on the major leagues, yep. but making these instructional videos and having these MLB teams watch him and, and show them to their players. Definitely a feather in his cap. So he's making his kids study baseball. He's turned his backyard into baseball a field. He's making these instructional videos. In the meantime, we have to move north for a little bit and kind of set the scene a little bit. We've got Portland in, in the early to mid-1970s. Mm-hmm. And so Portland, we, we, we've been over the culture and the history of professional yep. baseball in Portland a little bit. The Portland Beavers, this, this minor league team, was really struggling in Portland in 1973. There was bad attendance and basically interest got so low and so bad that the team actually moved to Spokane. So there was a gap here. There was a, there was a baseball chasm that had been created. And Bing was, was looking for opportunities and, you know, he always had that interest in terms of expanding his connection to baseball. Mm-hmm. So what he did is at this time, there were very few what are called independent baseball teams, independent baseball. And an independent baseball team is essentially a minor league team that doesn't have a connection or affiliation to a major league team. It's not a traditional feeder program. Like when we think of minor league baseball teams, we think of them as affiliates of major league teams, whether they're single A, double A, triple A. Like the Hops, for example, they're an affiliate of the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Eugene Emeralds are uh, an affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. Now, in independent baseball, they are a non-affiliate, and therefore the those teams control the players for whom they have under contract. Is that correct? They do. So there's a lot of movement. There's always kind of a shuffle. And – what Bing wanted is he wanted a minor league franchise in Portland 
where essentially there would be that community uh, connection and that understanding that these players aren't going there. They're playing for the love of the game. There'd be that cultural connection. And this would just be a totally different vibe with the same type of professional mm-hmm. level competitive base. And I think that with independent versus the affiliated, as Bing had said in a, a video that I had watched that was, you know, you may not know one week to the next who your players are on the roster because they're either being shuffled upward because they're doing well or they're moving downward because they're not doing so well or they're just completely cut from the team. Right. It's really hard to establish connections like that, especially in an area like Portland where they were really dying for that connection with baseball, having lost theirs. Mm-hmm. Bought the franchise for $500. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have any investors. He was going to fund this thing himself. And he took a wild risk. He, he funded this and he eventually got this team, this team that he put together to compete against single A affiliated teams, teams that are affiliated with major league teams. And so he got them to play in the Northwest League. So he's got this rogue, and rogue's a great word for it, yeah. rogue team playing in the Northwest League. So he hired his first coach, who was Hank Robinson. Tell me a little bit about this Hank Robinson. Hank Robinson, he's a longtime minor league star. And the owners originally wanted um, a a player manager for the team, but Hank Robinson was just not uh, the coach to have it. So, and I believe they ended up having open tryouts the first, uh, first season and every season after that. They did actually, they put an ad in the sporting news for open tryouts, not knowing really how many people were going to show up or what their level of skill was. I'm guessing it was a broad range of skill as one can understand in that time period. They put the ad in the sporting news and uh, 300 people show up. Many people thought that this was a was a joke to be putting out this ad for players. But I had read that it went so far as to reaching a player in South Africa who right. ended up coming to uh, Oregon to try out for the team. So it, it was pretty interesting. And like you said, most people, some people drove across country. It one player, uh, like I said, it came from South Africa, was named Rob Nelson. More specifically, he was in Three Anchor Bay, Cape Town, Africa. They, they had this guy that went by Swanee. And he's essentially a left-handed catcher, which is unheard of in baseball. You only get catchers that that hit left-handed, but a left-handed catcher is is basically one of those traditional taboos. Mm-hmm. And Bing Russell, I think, was also known as a a person who could uh, point out really good, talented players. And I think he was about setting when he was setting this up. He was all about wanting to have fun. And he he said, "You're not your typical looking, well-groomed baseball players." Is who they ended up, you know, getting or something. Yo, I think of I think of those. Like Boston Red Sox teams of the early 2000s, a little rough around the edges. <laughs> Johnny not, David with yeah, the full beard. There you go. Like, not so clean cut. Love to have a good time. Yeah. 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 Johnny David, Kevin Villar. They call themselves a bunch of idiots. Yeah. Yeah. They really, yeah. The idiots. Yeah. And, and I had read this, um, this newspaper article afterwards in the Oregonian, and I think it said that the Portland Mavericks new entry in the Class A Northwest Professional Baseball League drew 150 hopefuls at a tryout camp opening Thursday. The workouts designed to come up with talent for the team featured sprint races, fielding, batting, and base running. Two-thirds of the group were eliminated from camp. And then it said it went on to have double headers 
scheduled for that day and then the day after oh. to further trim the list of prospects. And I was looking at it. There were actual baseball games. So they're playing scrimmages for yes. tryouts, yes. essentially. And then oh they gosh. ended up – and then, Dave, check this out. They ended up having spring training afterwards to further trim down the list. It's insane. I mean, no one knew what's going on, but all in good fun. One of the most interesting stories uh, of about a player that played for him was that there was a 33-year-old high school English teacher who simply needed a summer job. But this guy had <laughs> yeah. played one – he had played one major league baseball game about <laughs> 10 years earlier. But he was a high school English teacher who needed a summer job. They actually ended up with a lot of guys in their 30s. So they were uh, much older than your traditional minor league team especially much older than your traditional single-A team. Because at that point, single-A teams were a bunch of guys between usually about the ages of about 18 and 25. And a lot of these guys, my understanding, had also played uh, at the collegiate level too. So they had some sort of background in baseball at, at that point. So this, the season gets open and culturally, they, you know, he, he wanted, he emphasized fun. And again, he wanted that connection with the community. They wanted to be a button down on a button up franchise. There was a sense of freedom and relaxation. Uh, Portland kind of had that cultural vibe as a town at that time. First game of the season, Gene Lanthorne throws a no hitter. Yeah. First game of the season. Yeah. At home, wasn't that? That was brilliant for him to do that at home. And remember, baseball traditionally can be a little stuffy and a little narrow minded. And they were kind of looked down upon as an independent franchise. But they, they took that chip on their shoulder a little bit, the Mavericks, mm -hmm. and they didn't care. And that relaxation actually caused them to play much better because they weren't – these guys weren't playing to advance to the next level to make the majors. They were just playing to have fun, play baseball, make a little bit of money, a very little bit of money. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't that pressure. And I think not having that pressure caused them to have success because they won a, a vast majority of their games. Yeah. And then uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Reggie – who was on the team and I was oh, Reggie Thomas. Yeah. yeah. And he <laughs> Bing actually bought a car and Reggie Thomas apparently lived across the street, but went and picked up Reggie Thomas and brought him into the stadium on the car. And everybody apparently was like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? He's like, just cause it's Reggie and he needs this. He was a true star. He was the Reggie Jackson of the Portland Mavericks, yeah. Reggie Thomas. We had him. Bing as an L.A. guy appreciated it. You know, you take care of your star and you want that star power, which is funny thinking about a single A independent franchise. <laughs> yeah, just to hilarious. do that. He's going, he's going a block or two. Right? Can you imagine like coming in right. on a, in a car to like the baseball stadium? Because you're like the, the <laughs> team got the player. Talk about just having fun and not taking yourself yeah. too seriously. So did, what did, did they end up finishing, what, 45 and 35 that season? Yeah, they had a winning record. And what happened – to the coach, what like Frank, there's something that happened to Hank Robinson. I'm like looking through my notes here, but there's something that happened to Hank Robinson that year. Do you remember what happened? Uh, okay. Oh yeah, here it is. So manager Hank Robinson was suspended for a year after punching an umpire. Awesome. So the the video that I saw was of Robinson talking about this, and he's in in is this deep voice, which I cannot uh, you know stay on this podcast because I can't I can't do it in the deep voice that he does. But he's like. I went up there on this bad play and this happened and the umpire pushed me. And then, you know, I, he pushed me again. And so then I hauled off and punched him. And he's like, you know, he, he fell to the ground and, you know, I, I thought I'd get a little suspension and then, but now I'm getting, you know, punished and getting, you know, suspended for a year. I mean, it's not how he's actually sounded, but it's pretty close. I'm sure there was some more colorful language in there when he was <laughs> speaking it. 
and my understanding is this started after a pass ball and the catcher threw the ball to the pitcher. However, the ball hit the runner on the back of the leg. Be mindful. This is uh, a team that's playing them and they have a runner advancing towards oh home and the Mavericks catcher throws the ball and hits the, the runner on the back of the leg. And then the catcher was thrown out of the game and Hank Robinson ended up feeling that injustice was done. But this is what started this chain of events of him being suspended for a year. Just wildness. And that, that's just that kind of wildness would follow the team everywhere. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, you've got to know that just by the way this team is run, people people had a lot against Bing Russell because he wasn't an establishment guy. He did things his own way. There was always uh, some discrimination towards teams that weren't were independent teams that mm-hmm. weren't uh, MLB affiliates. So Portland had everything kind of everyone against it in in the baseball community essentially, and they had that chip on its shoulder, which only made made uh, the people involved with the franchise try a little bit harder and have a little bit more fun. Mm-hmm. So after Hank Robinson left the team, who they end up hiring? Uh, I think they hired a local gentleman by the name of Frank Peters. In- interesting. This Frank Peters guy had a great athletic history himself. He did. So my understanding is is that Frank, he grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, lived there, and then he ended up going and playing for Oregon State. And two sports. Two sports. Two yeah. sports. He played yeah. baseball and basketball. And what was interesting is, is that even though he got drafted after two years of college with the Baltimore Orioles, he did not go to college to play baseball initially. He actually went there on a basketball scholarship. Wow. And his team was the last team by the Beavers to make the Final Four. Yeah. So he's he's kind of an icon in the Pacific Northwest. By the time this podcast comes out, Frank will have been inducted into the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame for the second time. First for uh, his time with the Oregon State Beavers basketball team. And now he's being inducted uh, for his time with his AAU team. So uh, congratulations to Frank Peters. Yeah, congratulations, Frank, on your uh, induction into the uh, Hall of Fame yet again. That's awesome. So it's about 1974. The franchise has been around about a year. They're having some success. Always getting a little blowback from the traditional baseball community. But regardless, Bing Russell wins the uh, manager, basically the owner of the year, the Baseball Executive of the Year Award for the league. Really? I did not know that. He did. And they they found a guy. Who, here's who presented him the trophy, who presented him the award. His old friend from Florida, Yankees Hall of Fame and legend, Lefty Gomez, uh, presented the award. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that. that. That's really cool. <laughs> it is cool. So it came full circle. I mean, he wow. must have been just thrilled. So we move on in 1975. And interest was holding steady. Attendance was good. People were liking it. But the Mavericks actually started taking off when, when a national a national broadcasting legend, Joe Gargiola, who was basically a national baseball broadcaster at an MLB and you know he was doing work all over the nation. And he came to Portland to do a national show on the Mavs. He had mm-hmm. his own television show. Back then, we're not talking cable TV. We're talking broadcast TV. So he had a show and he did a show on the Mavs. Well, the show ended up going so well and had such high ratings that he ended up doing two more shows on the Mavericks. And we're talking about a single A independent franchise. This is mm-hmm. unheard of at the time. That's really interesting because like, I, I remember uh, watching that same video and and having um, him come out there. And he said that he was only expecting to get like an hour or so of film, but ended up you know, staying even longer and getting more film, which ended up, like you said, 
running in what, two or three broadcasts. Yeah, multiple broadcasts. Uh, there are articles also, and, and again, this is at a time when print media was still pretty popular. There was a Sports Illustrated article and one in the New Yorker about the Portland Mavericks. Mm-hmm. So they're getting national exposure that no other minor league, let alone single A franchise, have got. Yep. Uh, Mavericks players are at time or paid them pretty well by minor league standards. They're paid four hundred dollars a month. Bing was one of those guys that kept a huge roster. You know, he he didn't mind. He wasn't cheap, and he kept a huge roster. Uh, because he was kind of those everybody participates, understood the love of baseball. It was a business to him, but it wasn't a business. It was a a business and a passion, and it was this it was this really interesting balance that you probably don't see much anymore. So he kept a huge roster. Things were going pretty well as we get into the, a little bit later into the mid to late seventies. They actually started expanding uh, when a certain player who had kind of been blackballed from Major League Baseball turned up. Yeah, isn't that uh, Tim Burton? Jim Jim, Jim Burton. Bowden. Jim Bowden. Jim, Jim Bowden. That's right. Now, here's the deal. He had been blackballed from Major League Baseball for writing an expose, a very controversial book called Ball Four. Yeah. And he basically was very clear, very realistic, and very descriptive in the scandalous goings-on behind Major League Baseball and exposing yep. the, the rampant uh, – the rampant will say vice – that went on behind the scenes. And I believe a lot of that was like in the actual locker room, if I'm correct, about what he what he discussed in that book. Or am I off a little bit on that? No, he uh, no. And he he basically was kind of pushed out of baseball, mm-hmm. essentially. So this book, Ball Four, didn't didn't help his career at all. OK, uh, owners and managers. And, and again, but uh, but he was the type that didn't really care. So he was he was kind of looking to way uh, make his way back into baseball. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and he he did he decided you know he was going to start at the bottom and nowhere there's nowhere better for a guy like that who really just doesn't care than in a city like Portland with a team like the Mavericks and Bing Russell absolutely embraced this guy knowing full well that he would not only fit in the culture of the clubhouse mm-hmm. but he would fit in in Portland and make it an even bigger draw and he yeah. you know that's the thing about Bing he really didn't care about the repercussions because he didn't have any grand ideas of promoting himself or, you know, expanding his empire. So he was, he was, he was a purist essentially. Yeah. And he wanted, own way. he wanted people that, that could play ball and that wanted to actually play baseball. So here in the single A team, they have this major league baseball all-star. So that's going to, that's just adding to their success. Interesting, t- uh, interesting little tidbit. Jim Bowden went on Johnny Carson in the late seventies and surprised the teammates by reading all their names all of, all the, the whole roster on Johnny yeah, Carson. Yeah, and that was like at the very end of like the Carson show when, and Johnny was like, you got to hurry up, you got to hurry up. <laughs> Another kind of tribute to, to Bing Russell and the Portland Mavericks franchise is in the 1970s and we're still talking in terms of times and culture and baseball and its tradition and this and that. The Mavs were actually super progressive. The first team, uh, professional team to have an Asian American manager they were first to have a female Batgirl and the, fir- the first to have a female general manager. Yep. So he was breaking down roles and he was he was uh, breaking some barriers. Yeah, and I believe her name was uh, Lainey Moss, who had been with the team the year prior and ended up being promoted to general manager. And she was 24 years old when she took this position. And some video that I saw said that she felt the toughest part of her job as general manager was signing player release letters. Huh. Yeah, that's so she she was a, a, 
a person after Bing Russell's own heart, right? Connection yeah. to the game. It's not just a business, this idea that it's, it's baseball is ingrained in the fiber of your being and, and this is kind of purity to it. Yeah. And, and throughout this whole time, I mean, the, the Mads were actually successful. I mean, we're up, talking up to 1975 at this point and they were successful because they had in 1975, they had actually gone to um, the league championship. It was a three game series and they ended up losing to the Eugene Emeralds. Uh, but you know, they, they, they're making it and they're being successful in the business. Yeah. In 1975, this, this thing, this term uh, was coined Maverick mania that overtook Portland attendance, just skyrocketed. They mm-hmm. were winning games. Part of the experience, the Maverick experience is more than even other minor league teams. Fans felt really connected to this team. Players would just wander up into the stands and sit and have chats. It was a very informal, casual atmosphere. Yeah. That's something that Bing Russell promoted. Wasn't that a fan appreciation night when they would go up and sit and talk with the fans? And I know that some players got very emotional and still get emotional about that today because of that direct contact they had with them. Yeah. And that just embraced the team even more to Portland. Yes. And, and, and you know, and vice versa. In the meantime, he's a man who understands that this game is truly entertainment. So they would really push the limits. They had Joe Garza, who was a clown with a sweet broom, and he would uh, he would he would light the broom on fire, and there were, you know no safety regulations. <laughs> they knew that basically there was no nothing too gimmicky, and so on and so forth. They yeah. knew he he knew the value of appealing to kids and keeping things kind of towing the line a little bit and pushing the envelope. And he did that when they were like gonna sweep the series or something <laughs> and, and my understanding is is that um the the bat boy was the one who made them in his home that's right the bat boy he he was in charge of constructing the brooms to be burned yeah. i'm sure there was no fire chief no fire inspector on site right <laughs> yeah you know i don't this, know if that would fly today does this go back to everything burns like with <laughs> everything we've been talking about so yeah. far yeah th- th- that's our theme right our motif of fire and burning yeah you know, everything theme. burns in portland yeah i can tell you what it's crazy <laughs> but so, the, yeah gimmicks, so by 19 right? yeah so and then moving on to what 1976 we have um uh, frank peters stepping away from you know the Mavericks, and okay. then ma- new manager uh, Jack Spring was hired, and I, I found out that uh, he was a major league relief pitcher with the Phillies, the Red Sox, the Washington Senators, uh, the Angels, the Cubs, Cardinals, and then on to the Indians. He had a career of a twelve and five record in uh, one hundred fifty five games that he pitched. And he finished fifty one games, and he had a four point two six ERA. Fantastic. We've got success, and it's you know you talk about the Mavs and their quirky way of doing things mm-hmm. and their gimmicks and this and that. Well, you're talking about solid baseball at that level, and you know as we head from the kind of mid '70s into the later '70s, mm-hmm. they're still getting you're still getting a lot of pressure and this whole resentment from the MLB, the MLB institution, resentment against independent franchises, resentments against being Russell, and especially the Mavs for the way that they wanted to do things. Now, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I've kind of sold him as this sentimental baseball lover, just lover of baseball. But he was a highly competitive guy. And he wanted to win. And they did win. And one of the things, though, is like even in 76 and in the previous years, you know, they again, they played for the championship series in 76. You know, they ended up losing. But back to that competitiveness, the other teams that weren't independent, my understanding is, is that they actually brought down better players to beat the Mavericks because they didn't want the Mavericks to win. Am I correct on? They would sacrifice player development and wins at the double or triple A level 
just to beat the Mavericks out of vindif- vindictive spite. Yeah. So they, they would really, that's how much the Mavericks were kind of hated culturally. Yeah. Teams would just say, forget player development, forget mm-hmm. double and triple A wins. We just got to make sure we beat the Mavericks. However, in 1977, the Mavericks had the highest win percentage, not just in the minors, but in all of professional baseball. They had the highest win percentage that year. I think they ended up finishing 22 games ahead of their next competitor in their division that season. They had won the division for the third time in three years. And on to how many fans they actually had. So I found some information on this. They attracted 125,000 fans to a total of 33 home games. Let's let's put that in perspective. Portland was a small town in the 70s. I mean, it was a fifth of what it is now. Tiny town. So they were getting 3,800 attendees per game. And now we're talking about single A independent baseball in Oregon. This isn't triple A. This is single A and you're getting 3,800 players per game. Unheard of. And it set a record attendance in a short short season baseball. If you weren't in Portland at that time, just understanding that perspective and that context, this is truly Maverick Mania, and this is a this is a unique sports franchise. Mm-hmm. If you put it in that in those terms, so as we head to the 1970s, there there is a lot of scheming by the powers that be in mm-hmm. terms of well, we want that Portland market. Yes, people wanted that Portland market. They wanted that fans, and they wanted the Mavs out. So there's a lot of collusion basically with with Major League Baseball and Major League affiliates in terms of how to move in on that market, how to take over that fan base, Mm -hmm. how to get Bing Russell out of baseball. And the wheels had really started turning in the mid-70s. But by the late 1970s, those wheels were in full effect. And there's this thing, it was like what this radius. So if you take a circle and you draw it around Portland, it was so many miles outside of this particular territory. And I think the PCL, MLB were claiming that we have rights to this specific area. Is that is that correct in my thinking? On this? Yeah, it was this kind of regional contract. There was a lot of fine print and a lot of uh, disputing territories and this and that. So in 1978, there were rumors of a AAA team uh, looking at Portland. The PCL as an organization, right, the Pacific Coast League, badly wanted a team in Portland. At that time, baseball had kind of bypassed and was not subject to any of the antitrust corporate laws, there wasn't a lot of strict regulation of, of baseball as corporations or baseball as a franchise. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of, uh, we'll say, back alley deals and political meanderings that basically people could do what they wanted, that the powers that be, those with really uh, large scale control and lots of money could do what they wanted. And, and this led to some really interesting times when you have Major League coming in and challenging Bing Russell, who who didn't back down. If I didn't, no, he didn't. What did he, what did he go on and do, Dave? So prior to that, the PCL paid $5,000, and that's all they had to pay to put a AAA franchise in mm-hmm. Portland, a AAA affiliate and franchise in Portland. They didn't have to answer to anyone. They didn't have to make any compromise. This infuriated Bing Russell. He ended up going to court and, and fighting this. And that was an arbitration, correct? Yeah, it was. And he fought the establishment and he fought the baseball. Uh, he, he fought and he, he won some victories. He actually said no way. They offered to buy him out and pay mm-hmm. him off $206,000. He won. He actually won an arbitration. And yeah. he was offered $206,000 by the PCL. Well, I think actually he 
they, he was going to get offered a lower amount. He said no, and he wanted $206,000 to cover, I think, expenses for his team and stuff like that. What happens was he was originally offered $26,000. Uh, he, he offered $26,000 for the rights, mm-hmm. and he said no way. And he said no way to that. And he eventually ba- battled. He put the number at 206000 yep. which he knew was kind of a ridiculous number that was essentially unheard of. It was one of those things. He kind of set those limits. And he hired Jack Faust, who's a kind of a, was a famous Portland attorney at the time. Mm-hmm. And again, he fought the establishment. And that's kind of that's kind of a Portland thing, right? Fighting the establishment. The Maverick Miracle, it was called. Basically, the, tra- the, the transformation. He fought and won. And a panel awarded Bing and the Mavs $206,000. Yeah. He was victorious. What's interesting about this is, though, even though he won $206,000 in arbitration, he didn't get paid for a while. Right. And so I don't think it was about the money for him. No. But what, but what I found is, is interesting is, is that in the next, the following year in 1978, when uh, the PCL started back here in Oregon and then there was another team. Uh, up north, they were playing a game, and there was a broadcaster doing an interview with Bing Russell, and he was wearing this shirt that said 206 on it. Nice. 206. So it stood for the amount of money that he was owed that he had not yet been yeah. paid by the PCL, who said if they had paid him, it would have like made him go bankrupt. But it was great that he's wearing this shirt that said 206 while getting interviewed. It was it was a huge it was a historic settlement. It was mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and so essentially he was a victory. He was a vic- he was victorious. Another way that he was really victorious is he he was kind of a trailblazer, pardon the pun, and and, and opened up the opened up the doors for independent baseball. There are now sixty five independent professional teams now. Oh, there is yeah, wow. there's sixty five teams, which was unheard of back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And again. Some some other interesting factoids, right? Port, Portland with this whole baseball culture. Several man, uh, Maverick players are credited with inventing Big League Chew. Yes, that's Do correct. you remember Big League Chew? Big League Chew. I remember that and, uh, growing up. And uh, so my understanding is, is that part of the reason behind Big League Chew was to help people not chew tobacco. Right. It's, a, it's kind of a... A supplement, if you will. Yep. So we, we've, you know, we've got this, we've got this rich history. It was, you know, the Mavericks were here for about five years, mm-hmm. but it was a powerful five years. It was. And, and I got a little bit that I want to add on to this old big league two thing and yeah. some other stuff. Continue. Talked about Reggie Thomas. Okay. Reggie Thomas has been missing since 1984. What? And many people believe that he was an FBI informant. It's it infiltrating the Portland Mavericks. I, I don't know if it was after that or what, but to spy on Kurt Russell, Bing yeah. Russell's son who played on the team, like yeah. something weird. So oh. Reggie Thomas has essentially been missing um, since 1984. Uh, Bat Boy Todd Field, who we talked about about making right. the brooms, he is an Academy Award nominee, five Academy Awards. Yes, yeah, five. And he had five, yeah, five Oscar nominations for his movie In the Bedroom. Uh, Larry Colton, the pitcher, went on to be a writer and was nominated for the Pulitzer Surpri- Pulitzer Prize in 2004. And of course, you know Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, right, we all right? know Kurt Russell. Film after film after film, the mm-hmm. Kurt Russell. Uh, interesting tidbit, Bing's grandson, carrying on that tradition, Matt Franco, again, who was a Mavs bat boy in the 1970s. Oh, really? Bing's grandson 
ended up playing in the major leagues, Matt Franco. Oh, really? How cool is that? That is awesome. A cool thing about all this is that in our research and coming full circle on this, didn't they just make a documentary of this, you know, a few years ago and two individuals who were close to Bing, and I believe they were his grandsons, made the documentary? They did. And uh, the Bat Boy actually made it, Todd Field. Todd Field, yeah. The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Yeah. Fantastic documentary. It's fantastic. It, I almost cried at the end of this film. Todd, you did a fantastic job. Yeah. Boys, you guys did a fantastic job. If you don't have Netflix, get it just to watch this. It's yeah. phenomenal. Even if you're not that into documentaries, this is an absolute must watch. Yeah. Dave, before we close everything out, um, I, I, I want to put this – this question to you because I know we've talked about this a couple different times and we talked about with the major league team coming to, to Portland and it is coming. Do you name the team the Mavericks? We discussed this previously. I don't think we ever came to any conclusion, but I wanted to hear what you got to say. I don't know. Maybe I'm leaning that direction now. You know, Maverick, I mean, as a Maverick, right? Mm-hmm. Going your own way, not following tradition. That's kind of what Portland's built its reputation on. I don't know. I, I, I guess prior to doing all the research and, and getting kind of invested in the Mavericks history, it might be a nice form of tribute. I'm just saying it might be a nice form of tribute uh-huh. to Bing Russell and his franchise and the players who kind of were, were pivotal in, in bringing baseball to Portland in the 1970s and, mm-hmm. and livening up the city. I don't know. I'm putting that one on my list. I've been debating this in my mind for a little while now, trying to think ever since you and I talked about it. And what I'm going back and forth on is, one, is it really going to do a service to the team or is it going to do a disservice to the team? We, we talked about this um, on you know many a time. And I, 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 I'm worried about doing a disservice to the team. Yeah, this this is not a trivial thing. I know for to the casual fan and when, you, when it comes to – major sports franchises than the name on the surface it might it might not seem as if that's a big an issue but but from a from a connection standpoint from a financial standpoint it's a huge decision and there's a lot of focus groups that go into deciding that mm-hmm. and a lot of demographic analysis and testing the waters so to speak so this is not something to be taken lightly yeah and i know that a lot of people out there want the portland mavericks name to be used I'm like you now leaning towards that, having done some research on this, looking into this, watching the battered bastards of uh, baseball. I really, I really wanted them to do it right though, to go about, if you're going to name it the Mavericks, go about doing it the right way. What that way is, I don't know, but it's, it's a really important thing now having done all this. And you got to just do a service to the group. You know, I, I'd be inclined to get the perspective of some of the key players involved. The Russell family, Peters, Robinson, maybe maybe some of the players. Mm-hmm. Okay, Todd, Todd, the director, Todd yeah. Field, the director. It'd be cool to get their input on this. It would be, it'd be really good because you could see the emotion that was in these guys when they talked about this team. Yeah. I mean – we're not talking like, oh, whatever. I mean, we're talking about these guys that were angry that this got taken away from them. Not, not just, I don't think because of it being baseball per se, but the fact that it meant a lot to them, being meant a lot to them, the city meant a lot to them. 
I mean, I've read articles where where people are get very emotional about the city itself and about the people that were here. So they they should be involved in the decision. And I hope they're you know, I hope those people are consulted and involved in this process, you know, in terms of honoring the history and honoring the achievements and honoring the connections. So this make this a, an authentic kind of organic process with integrity and fidelity and get the perspective of some people who were the trailblazers, the pioneers, essentially. Exactly. Dave, this has been a really good episode. I'm really loving what we're doing here with, you know, this this history and, you know, putting this in more of an audible form so people can listen to it on, you know, Camille or wherever they're at. So I really appreciate, you know, what we're doing here. Yeah, I'm having a really good time. There's a couple places you can check us out. Uh, one is online at? At uh, dnrpodcast.wordpress.com. That's dnrpodcast.com. Dot wordpress.com follow us on twitter yeah at podcast roses that's at sign podcast roses or you can even email us at diamonds and roses podcast at gmail.com that's diamonds and roses podcast at gmail.com go ahead check out our awesome sponsor portland gear store too yep do we have anything else coming up any events or anything uh well by the time this one comes out, we will already have had a great interview done with uh, none other than Frank the Flake Peters. Yeah, that should be a good time. We're looking forward to interviewing Frank. All right. Well, for the Diamonds and Roses podcast, I'm Dave. And I'm Ben. And we will talk to you later. Peace out. <laughs>